This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing the leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. This is the program where you get to call in with any type of question that you have about your medical needs. That may be a symptom that you have. It might be uh, something that uh, you just don't quite understand about um, a medication. Maybe it's a side effect. We are here for you today. Email us. That email address is remedy at uh, mpbonline.org. You can also reach our podcast uh, with your favorite podcasting app. If you just uh, go and search for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio, you can certainly do that and uh, download that podcast whenever is uh, most convenient uh, to listen to. You can access that at your convenience. Boy, it is hot outside, hot inside, too, in a lot of places. So, uh, you know, if you uh, there's a lot of people that are dealing with uh, power outages or uh, cooling uh, outages. And, uh, you know, we mentioned a couple of months ago about getting things checked out as the heat uh, really pumped up. I saw online last night that uh, this is, uh, yes, I think yesterday, was the hottest um, recorded average temperature on the planet since they've been doing this since the late 19th century. That's the late 1800s. And uh, it certainly feels like it in Mississippi. I can tell you that. Went to, uh, was able to go to a... Uh, a 4th of July celebration Saturday, and uh, it did not rain on us. As uh, That's another aspect of, uh, you know, the hot weather in the south. We sort of get that uh, coastal effect of those afternoon showers. Uh, but it certainly was hot and humid well up into the 90s uh, later in the day, so up around 8 o'clock. So please be careful out there. Please hydrate, prehydrate before you even get outside. Limit your time outside to the uh, less intense parts of the day. That's early in the morning, late at night. And uh, protect yourself from that sunlight. Seek out the shade, a breeze. And certainly if you have chronic medical problems, you want to do that all the more. Uh, but that's certainly something that uh, that you want to do as you continue to celebrate. And certainly we uh, are appreciative of the freedom that we have uh, here in this country to do all these things. I just uh, Every year I was actually asking uh, uh, some friends, uh, their son last night, he's like, what are the most the, the thing that really is the symbol of freedom uh, that means the most to you? And of course, you know, the flag comes to mind, but uh, but also going and doing some of these things that we do and able to travel across state lines and uh, to really uh, do that with a lot of freedom. Uh, I know I love our, uh, you know, our uh, public lands that we have and that they belong to all of us, really. That's something that we can all enjoy. And uh, certainly I enjoy that in uh, traveling and uh, fishing when I can. So certainly am, am thankful that we can do that. Just want to make sure that you are staying safe while you do it. 
Uh, you know, another thing that comes up, there's lots of different uh, celebrations and um, uh, different activities that people enjoy during this time of year. One of them is maybe a competitive eating contest. So Kevin Farrell and I, our producer, were talking about this uh, right before the program. And uh, if you haven't seen this or participated, basically there is some type of food item and you compete to see how much of it you can eat in a limited amount of time. And of course, uh, you need to fully eat this. Uh, You don't have to chew it up necessarily, but you do have to eat it. And uh, the goal is to get the most down uh, without it coming up. Uh, so that's that's always a, a, a challenge there. You know, what's the health risk for this? Well, actually, there are some. Uh, you can eat too much, and uh, everybody says, "Well, you'll just you know you'll you'll it'll come back up if you eat too much," and that's true most of the time. But if you force that, and actually, there's a lot of uh, health risk if you. Um, if you resist that, uh, that uh, impulse to vomit it back up, uh, you can do a lot of damage. You know, our stomach, uh, pretty much everything in the intestinal, in the, in the digestive system, is what we call a hollow viscous. So it's a big, long tube, basically. And some parts are able to hold more volume than others. For instance, your stomach is able to hold more volume than others. That can change over time. So you can uh, increase the diameter of that if you load it up, so to speak. Um, Or the opposite is true as well. If you don't eat as much for a long time, it can sort of shrink back down a little bit. But it is a capacitance organ, a hollow viscous. And what happens, though... When that gets ready to go the next step, our intestines aren't really meant to handle that much volume. And you can release, your stomach can release small amounts over time. But if you have a large uh, capacity and you are resisting that coming back up, there are limits to that. And just like a balloon, you can have a rupture of that. uh, And certainly it's not good for your system to do that. So if you're a competitive eater, Make sure you're uh, you're you're thinking about that. I think the people who are most likely to have medical problems are the ones that just go out and do it. Um, so maybe not the best activity to do uh, uh, this time of year or any time of year for that matter, but it does sort of come up from time to time. So, Dr. Jimmy, I checked. Joey Chestnut is the 16-time winner of the Coney, uh, the uh, hot dog eating contest at Coney Island in New York City. How he, many hot dogs is that? 62 hot dogs in 10 minutes this that year. That is amazing. That is incredible. <laughs> I A lot of times, I love a hot dog on occasion, like ballparks or, you know, certain time. you know, go to certain, you know, uh, uh, go to Chicago or New York. and uh, But uh, I don't know that I've ever had any urge to uh, put that many hot dogs. Once I've had one, that's about it. So I can't imagine 62 in 10 minutes or what, not to mention everything that you just put in your body. That's a big salt load too, by the way. That's a, a lot of salt in a hot dog. So that's amazing. Even if I was paid a lot of money to win that, I don't think that would be worth it. So uh, that's pretty scary and amazing at the same time so be careful with be careful with that as you're out there hey I had another uh, covid email question about uh you know about um so thankfully we haven't seen a lot of covid cases 
goodness, in over six months, I guess. We still have some, and certainly the elderly are the ones that are, uh, or if you've had chronic medical conditions, are the ones that we still see in the hospital from time to time, still see a high mortality, a lot of people dying with that. Uh, But, you know, there's a lot of questions about if you're in that high-risk group, should you and when should you get vaccinated? So if you have received the most latest uh, vaccination for that, uh, you should be good for right now. If you've had that, um, you know, sometime within the last five or six months, uh, certainly if you haven't had it and it's been about five or six months between your last one, you probably need to go ahead and get uh, that uh, the latest booster um, if you're in that high risk group. Um because of, you know, sort of the community, low levels in the community right now, and because of the immunity that we have through both vaccinations and with getting the virus itself, there's not as much risk, you know, for other people. So uh, that's that's sort of my answer there. I think this person was um, up in their 70s, and certainly they would qualify for that. So if you haven't gotten that last uh, booster, I would recommend it if you were my patient, if you were in my family. Um Really, the the side effects with that are very low. Um, uh, there's a lot of concern, of course, fear, and a lot of things on the internet from that. But if you actually look at the data, it's really pretty low and safe for that. So they are looking at a a future. You know, what do we do with this from a seasonality standpoint? Because this is probably going to be sort of like the flu moving forward. Um, uh, what a lot of people think. Of course, we don't totally know that. Um, just sort of have to see what happens. But um, there is a nasal vaccine that they have looked at um, that is a little bit more effective than, say, or at least as effective as some of the other ones. Makes sense. Uh, anything that you um, introduce through the nasal passages, <clears throat> having a nasal vaccine actually helps a little bit more with it. So if you'll remember, we did have <clears throat> we did have a flu vaccine several years ago that uh, or almost probably a couple of decades ago now um, that was on the market that you could uh, uh, have a little bit better immunity. There were some problems with that, both with delivery and with a, a couple of side effects. So that's not as useful anymore. Um, but certainly it makes sense if that's the first place that you're going to it's going to be introduced in your body. That should be the first line of defense. And it sort of introduces that uh, those components of that um, of that virus in a way that sort of prompts your natural immune system to be aware of it. Hope everybody's staying cool today and especially during the uh, the, the uh, daytime. Another thing you can, uh, you know, have is uh, a lot of uh, sort of what I call a holiday hangover, whether that's from alcohol or not, uh, the next day. So I hope you're uh, rehydrating today to sort of make up for that. We mentioned salt load with hot dogs, but certainly we eat a lot of salt, particularly here in the South, and that can have big effects. Um, it is not unheard of that ERs see a lot more heart failure and chronic kidney disease exacerbations uh, in our ERs in the state the day after holidays. And that's usually because we eat a lot of foods like ham and uh, hot dogs, hamburgers, chips, uh, all the things that have salt in them. And that tends to, in particular, uh, affect a lot of people who are sensitive to volume changes like with heart failure. So we do uh, notice that there's sort of an uptick in those uh, during uh, the holidays uh, in our patients that have that. So want to be careful about that and as much as you can, you know, certainly uh, one or two chips, maybe a couple bites of a hot dog. That's not going to harm anybody. But um, make sure that you're hydrating today um, if you've, you know, 
eaten, fallen off the wagon, so to speak, on eating uh, yesterday. Maybe not 62 hot dogs like our friend, but uh, that's just incredible. It still like boggles my mind. Got a couple of emails here, by the way. Uh, so aortic stenosis is one of those that sometimes comes up from time to time, and it's a common problem with the aortic valve. So the aortic valve is the main valve that... Um, helps to make sure that you don't have blood that goes back into the heart from the main artery, the aorta, that travels to the rest of our body, whether that's pretty much everywhere in our body besides the lungs. So um, that is uh, the main system that delivers that blood to the rest of your body. And if your aortic valve, there's two things that can happen with it over time. It can be leaky. We call that aortic regurgitation. Or, or aortic insufficiency, and that's when blood leaks back from the aorta back into the heart. Or it can be stenotic or closed off so that it uh, does not allow blood to empty from the heart into the aorta. So this was a question about aortic stenosis. And um, they said that they are 89 with no chronic health issues, and they um, went to the doctor, and they were diagnosed with aortic stenosis and high blood pressure. Uh, they saw a cardiologist for this, and the cardiologist said it was time to get serious about an aortic valve replacement, and they suggested something called a TAVR, which is a uh, transarterial aortic valve uh uh, replacement. So basically, they're going to replace that aortic valve without doing the classic open heart surgery, where they would have to, you know, make an incision in the chest, crack the chest, the sternum, uh, and then uh, replace the valve. Put you on a pump, uh, you know, a, a aortic bypass pump, um, and then replace the valve, and then put you back on it. Which had a lot of risk, particularly if you're older. They've gotten so good with doing this and deploying valves, and people whose anatomy, how they're sort of put together there with the aortic valve and the other things that are in that vicinity, that it's a much safer procedure, particularly if you're older and a little bit more at risk for that. So uh, this person said they put them off because they didn't have any symptoms, and they went to their general practitioner. They gave a couple of echo uh, cardiogram, which is just an ultrasound of the heart that can look at that valve and see the valve area, like what the the how much uh, how open it is or how closed it is, and how much blood flow is going through there. It's a very useful tool. It's the most common thing that we use to monitor aortic stenosis over time, and. Um, they were uh, said they didn't fully understand the numbers. They just felt like that the cardiologist was pushing the aortic valve replacement too hard. They had no typical symptoms of heart disease. Um, they also said that they would have to have a heart catheterization prior to the tra- to the aortic valve replacement to make sure there's no other complications. So, uh, you know, questions about this are very useful because, there's again, there's a lot of people out there that may not understand this. So when you reduce how much blood is coming out of the heart, there's a couple of things that happen. Um, number one, um, you, when you have symptoms, it's very, very late. So that valve area... Um, it can be very, very stenotic, and uh, it can it can be a l- whole lot less than than what you need. And if you wait until you have symptoms, there's actually worse outcomes with that, which is one reason why we monitor it with the echocardiogram, with that ultrasound, to make sure that once it gets to a certain small size of that hole that's left in the in the aortic valve 
that's the point when you want to do the replacement. If you wait until you have symptoms, which the most common symptoms are uh, you uh, can have certainly heart failure symptoms. You can also have syncope. You can pass out, um, and you can have angina. You can have chest pain because you're not getting enough. The first vessels in the aorta that come off of it are the vessels that help to bring blood to the, your heart. So those re, uh, also have a reduced blood flow. So if you wait until you have any kind of symptoms, that is very, very late in the game, which is, again, why we don't just, you know, if that were the case and we could wait until we had symptoms, we wouldn't even ultrasound. We would just go ahead and just go by symptoms only. So I don't think in this case the cardiologist is trying to just do the procedure. I think it certainly is time based on the numbers that, that uh, they gave. And, again, we, we you know get more specific and emails back to individuals who send those in. Um, but um, that's something that should be done sooner rather than later. If you wait until you have heart failure or angina, chest pain, what that means is you're damaging your heart right now. So if you wait until you have those symptoms, that's not something that can always be corrected. And if you wait too late with those symptoms, uh, it is an irreversible process, even if you fix the valve. Um, so that's another reason for doing it sooner rather than later. Now, the cardiac catheterization beforehand, sometimes they'll do that. Uh, they'll do a different test like an MRI looking at where those cardiac vessels that go out those coronary arteries take off of the aorta that feed into the heart to provide blood flow there. And that's very important because the way they deploy that artificial valve you need to know where those vessels are to deploy it um, exactly where it needs to go. And again, cardiologists have gotten very, very good at doing this, uh, much less risk because basically you're having a cardiac catheterization to put that in. Um, and then you go home uh, within a day of doing it, um, which is incredible if you think about having a valve replaced. There are many other things that they can do, like uh, they can deploy similar devices or devices in a similar way, like across uh, holes in your heart. So if you have a uh, atrial septal defect, they can do that, or a ventri- ventricular septal, septal defect, or the basically holes between two chambers in the heart. They can do similar procedures, and they're looking at ways to do that with other valves as well. But it is a very good procedure. I would trust your cardiologist on this based on the numbers that they said. And I don't want to get in the weeds with numbers on the air, but I'll, I'll respond more to that on the email. I'm going to take another email while we're waiting on people to call. And uh, this one um, talks about uh, a little bit about um, horse flies. Now, for whatever reason, uh, I am one of those people that horse flies love. I don't know if there's something in my blood. I know a lot of people have speculated and say, what's your blood type? That has a lot to do with it. I don't know that that really holds out. I don't know that they're, they're that selective. But horseflies certainly are uh, one of the nuisances, particularly here in the South, that can just wreak havoc on you if you're trying to enjoy your time outside. And they seem to love me more than others. Uh, so this question is really good one. It says, what good remedy for horseflies or a good repellent to keep them away? Uh, I am with you on this. I have found that, you know, if you don't have any problems with DEET, uh, and DEET is one of the most common insect repellents out there. It's, you know, the old off was made with DEET. They actually have lower levels of DEET and things now. Pretty safe to use. Not, you know, if I know a lot of people are sort of hesitant to put that on. But that's actually one of the better things. The thing with horseflies are, 
you know, if DEET is more of a repellent that uh, insects are going to avoid, they're very sensitive to smell, and in particular, they can smell carbon dioxide that we exhale. So if you exhale that, you know, for me, if I'm running, if I'm uh, out and doing activities outside and I'm exhaling a lot of carbon dioxide, they're going to they're gonna be sensitive to that. They're going to be drawn to it. Um, that's the way they locate animals to, to you know, bite and to, to suck <laughs> stuff out of. So um, that w- indeed is very effective as, a, as a, an avoidance. Um, now, horseflies are a little um, – that usually works if you can use that. A lot of other people say, well, I'm not really into that. What about some of the botanical oils and other things that are listed as deterrents? Um, like lemon eucalyptus is one uh, that's that's commonly used. That's okay, and it can be a deterrent too, uh, but it um, you know it's not going to be as effective probably as DEET, um, particularly if horseflies are involved. Now, if you're talking about mosquitoes, that's pretty effective. It's it's probably equally as eff- effective as DEET if using some of those other products. Uh, I know a lot of people like smear different things on them. They'll have like oregano or all kinds of herbs. And sometimes that works, but horseflies are just tough little critters. And uh, I don't know. It doesn't – I think sometimes I'll, I have great um, – satisfaction in stopping running and like hitting them uh, on me. Uh, and I, I think I'm doing, you know, I'm killing a lot of them. I think what I'm doing is I'm attracting more. I think there's something about killing a horse fly that three more are going to be attracted to you. And all I get is bit one more time from allowing them to, to land on me. So I uh, hope that helps. There are some clothing. We mentioned that in previous programs that you can get that has uh, pyrethrins, which are also a plant-based uh, substance that are um, uh, insects, particularly the biting insects, are uh, they try to avoid that, and it's actually impregnated in the fabric. And uh, you got about fifty to a hundred washings that are pretty good that it's effective on before it wears out. So that's something else that you can use to uh, to try to do that. And there's lots of different clothing that has that now. Of course, a little bit expensive when you compare it to other clothing, you know, that you're going to wear outside. But that can actually be effective, very effective for ticks and uh, other biting insects that hop on you because they will sort of hop on your clothes uh, first. So try that out. We hope that uh, works for those biting insects, particularly horseflies. But I agree there. If there's one insect that you just, just man, it's just infuriating. That's that's the one. And you can just see it. You can't really see those mosquitoes. Maybe that's the thing about it. Like, you know it's coming. You see it there, and it's hitting you and landing on you. It's just uh, such a nuisance. going to go to Bob from Clarksdale. Good morning, Bob. Hi. Um, just had a question about slow uh, max, and, and uh, I was with my doctor, and I was having some trouble with having to frequently urinate, getting up in the middle of the night a lot. Uh, and he looked at my PSA number, and he described slow max, and he said, uh, "Let me talk to you. To, you know, come back in a few months. We'll look at your. I, I think he was talking about the PSA number. So we'll look at that again." And I think it's made the, the medication. I've been on it for oh, a month or so. I think it's made some difference, not huge, huge, dramatic, but you know, it's made a, uh, a, a little bit of a noticeable difference. But uh, I, I wondered if I also have a, a hernia in the groin area, and I was wondering if that could have anything to do with uh, 
frequent urination or causing problems like an enlarged prostate does, if that could be involved also. Yeah, great question, and one that particularly males, as we get older, we have more problems with. That's one that I usually ask my older patients, you know, are you... Are you up? How many times are you up in the night going to the bathroom? If it's more than about two times, which to me that's quite a lot when you think about it. I mean, that's going to interfere with your sleep. Then there's a couple of different things that we look at that can cause that. Uh, certainly, prostatic enlargement is something that normally happens as we get older anyway. Uh, the prostate uh, sits in the uh, right where the urethra, which is the tube that connects to the bladder to the outside of the body, uh, that you urinate through, um, that prostate sits around that urethra. The urethra actually goes through it. And as the prostate enlarges in size, it sort of kinks that off. That causes your bladder not to empty completely, so it stays bigger and it doesn't completely empty. And therefore, at night, uh, you get sort of this overflow of, of urine. So that's one cause. There are other causes, and I, I don't necessarily jump to the prostate, you know, as, as the culprit right off the bat. We do look at other things. I'm sure your physician has done this, but looking at things like blood sugar, because uh, if you have diabetes or even prediabetes, sometimes you can reach levels uh, where your glucose gets high enough that that's the way we get rid of it is in our urine. And when it goes into the urine, basically it takes water with it. And you can have a lot more water leave and basically your bladder just fills up. It's just like drinking more and more water that way. But let's stick with the prost- let's stick with the prostate as the culprit. So a PSA, a prostate specific antigen, is a measure of a breakdown product of that prostate that you can get in a blood test. And most of the time, you know, it's gone we've gone back and forth with whether this is a good screening technique for prostate cancer. And in people who are asymptomatic, in other words, you don't have a problem with uh, going to the bathroom more at night, uh, you know, that those males, that that's not a very useful uh, way of screening for prostate cancer after the age of 40. Once you start to have symptoms, though, actually it is. Uh, and if it gets over a certain amount, or if you see a change in it, if it goes up quickly, which is probably what your physician is alluding to, is like, hey, it's a little bit elevated, That, and it can be elevated not just from prostate cancer, but also from prostate enlargement. So he's really looking at that as an indicator to decide whether or not to do some other screening for prostate cancer in you. And it can also, you know, be the prostate enlargement can be treated with medications like Tamsulosin, which is Flomax, or uh, certain other medications that are that block certain uh, things in that uh, are making that prostate enlarge. So they're they're pretty useful. They don't have a a very quick effect, though. In other words, once you start taking them, it's not going to be like a even a one week change. Like you're going to have to take this sometimes for months. Because the prostate gets larger slowly and it can shrink down slowly as well. So sometimes they'll add other medications to that, um, uh, you know, in trying to to uh, to treat it. But it, it, if they didn't mention that earlier, just keep that in mind, Bob. That it's gonna it's, that may be a months long thing to try to get better. Okay. Okay. I. And is, is there any long-term problem with taking the Flomax for months and months? 
Not not really. The biggest side effect that people have with it is sometimes they'll get a little lightheaded because it does have a little bit of a blood pressure lowering effect. Um, and particularly if you jump up really quickly um, or if you're just a little bit dehydrated, sometimes it can have that, that effect. And that's one of the reasons why they recommend that you take this at night. Uh, I don't know if he's got you on that twice a day or just once a day. Uh, just, just once a day, and I usually I take it in the morning. Yeah, if if you don't, you know, if you don't have any side effects, don't worry about that that part of it. But a lot of times they'll say take it at night because of that. But other than that, there's not really any long term, uh, you know, risk with that. It, if anything, it should help decrease that size. And like I said, if it's if it's not working, there's a couple other medications that they make and try. And then they're going to follow that PSA just to make sure it's not increasing beyond a certain number. Or if it's, you know, say if it's doubling or if it goes up by a certain amount, there's different ways of looking at it depending on what it was to begin with and your age. Okay, and so the uh, hernia is probably not. Oh yes, yeah, the hernia probably is totally separate. It's it it is far enough away from that system, your bladder and everything, that that's not going to cause any problems with with going, you know, with having uh, nocturia with going to the uh, with urinating at night. Okay, all right, thank you, much. All right, Bob, thank you. Let's go to Craig from Biloxi. Good morning, Craig. Hey, good morning. Uh, I heard you talking about mosquitoes, which got me to thinking about the malaria cases that they have yeah. in the U.S. Yeah, that certainly has increased uh, lately. And it's, you know, with the warmer climate that we have had over the last few years, it's not surprising Um you know, that's that's carried by a certain type of mosquito ca- called the uh, Anisopheles mos- mosquito. And um, it um, in warmer areas, people don't realize this. You know, when when Europeans first came to this country, we had malaria. We had yellow fever. We had cholera. Um, we had, uh, you know, lots of, of diseases because of the standing water that we had because of uh, you know, the way that we accessed water uh, certainly was a lot different than back then. And so we've we've been able to eliminate a lot of these. But warmer weather certainly favors the conditions that that mosquito would uh, would be able to reproduce more in. And certainly with that mosquito there, you know, that's what we would call like an insect vector then you certainly could carry malaria. So that is a possibility, particularly, you know, it's certainly in certain areas of Mississippi and, and along the coast, um, maybe even in central Mississippi. But um, it's, um, you know, certainly Florida, uh, you know, uh, the whole state of Florida, pretty much, that's a lot of risk there with a lot of those things. And you see a lot of the Caribbean um, Caribbean illnesses that are mosquito-borne that do affect Florida as well. I think the biggest lesson there that we need to be is we need to pay attention. If you have unexplained fever, particularly if it's relapsing fevers and fatigue, uh, unexplained anemia, then certainly your healthcare physician should be aware of that. I should mention that you know we we got in a uh, as as these things pop up, the Mississippi State Department of Health issues a lot of warnings, and I get emails from the Mississippi State Department of Health and the CDC frequently if something like this comes up because they're tracking these types of things, and that's helpful. That goes out to all physicians in the state. Um, 
so that they can sort of keep up for with it. You know, malaria is not something that we typically see, except in travelers who've gone to areas that are endemic for malaria and then come back. And certainly that heightens our suspicion with those types of symptoms. But uh, these type of alerts go out so that they can be aware of that and that they can, uh, you know, if somebody does, maybe they may need a little refresher and go back to the textbooks and read on that uh, to make sure we're up to date on it. Yeah, and there are, there are, I don't think there are any uh, vaccinations against that, and I believe it takes, what, three weeks to, to develop any symptoms? Right. The way the the way it depending on what type of malaria it is, they have a little bit different life cycles, but you, it does take a couple of weeks sometimes after you're inoculated with that for it to show symptoms. Uh, we don't have a, there is a vaccination that is being tested right now. Um, it's not available by any means anywhere. But they have tested it in several different places, I believe in Africa and the Middle East, because that is certainly where we see the most of this uh, malaria. Malaria kills a lot of people every year, and it's one of those diseases that's sort of been targeted that if we could eliminate that, we could certainly improve the lives for millions of people worldwide. So a vaccination would be great if we could uh, develop that, Uh, but, uh, you know, Keeping a close eye for symptoms is probably the biggest thing. There are treatments for that um, that you can uh, you can uh, certainly. There's a lot of, of specific antibiotics that are used uh, to treat malaria, and we've done that. I can remember even as a resident, you know, 25, 30 years ago, that uh, we had a couple of kids that would come in. Uh, they were either immigrants or they had they had um, to the country from areas that had had malaria. Or if they've had travel to those areas, usually it takes a pretty good exposure to get it, though. Like if you're going to be in an area that has malaria, uh, say, for a week, uh, that's not if you're if you, you know, put on mosquito repellent. I mean, I've been to Honduras about 20 times. I usually put on mosquito repellent while I'm there. I'm pretty good. Um, And uh, even though they have malaria there, I haven't taken malaria prophylaxis. If you're going into areas that have it, though, there are certain medications that you can take depending on what the area is um, that that would at least help you help prevent you getting malaria while you're there. Okay, thank you. All right, Craig, thank you for calling. We had a caller that wanted to know if alcohol can affect your prostate. Uh, they said that they were 60 and had problems urinating in the middle of the night after he drinks at night. Um, it doesn't affect the prostate, but alcohol is a mild diuretic. Uh, so it does, uh, a diuretic is just any type of medication or substance that you ingest that can make you urinate more. And that's certainly what alcohol does. It has a little bit of a dehydrating effect anyway. So you tend to sweat a little bit more. You tend to, your heart rate goes up a good bit. It's not a very good uh, thing to, uh, you know, a lot of people say, I just need my toddy to get to sleep. It is um, true that it will make you sleepy for about the first 30 minutes. But if you look at the sleep quality, and they certainly have done this in individuals, sort of a neat study to do if you think about it. They basically uh, gave people alcohol to drink and then studied them at night. And uh, I would have probably, if particularly if I was a college student, probably done that, um, I signed up for that. But, uh, but what they found is the quality of sleep that you have uh, certainly lessens at night um, and it can disrupt your sleep. So yeah, not having an effect on your prostate so much, even though uh, if you drink a lot of alcohol, it, um, it can um, 
you know, it can increase your risk of certain cancers, of a lot of cancers, including prostate cancer. So you need to keep that in mind. But that's that's not the direct um, uh, physiology that's going on, pathophysiology that's going on. So that alcohol just acts uh, on the kidneys to allow you to uh, to produce more uh, urine. So that's that's the effect there. And that's just, you know, making you do that more. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you want. Man, we've got a lot of good modalities for getting that. We had a question from the studio, which is a fair game. You know, it certainly I get uh, on the way in, and sometimes during the program, we're like, "Hey, what about this?" And I said, "Oh, that's a great thing to to uh, talk about on the air." We've had callers, which we always encourage, and that certainly determines most of the content that we talk about on air every week. And we've had some people to say, don't really want to talk on the air. Certainly understand that. But uh, here's my question. Uh, So this was a caller's son who is 50 years old that is having uh, left foot numbness. And uh, what could that be? Long list of things, but I'll sort of tell you how we would uh, approach that. The first question that I would ask is, Okay, tell me about the circumstances around when you feel your foot being numb. Is it something that slowly came on? Did you injure yourself? Were you picking up something? Is there something out of the ordinary that you did or you had pain in your back or your leg? And again, uh, it can be anything from the lower back all the way down, uh, actually, Pretty much in the brain, too, you can have things. But uh, if it's just in the foot, um, that is a very specific area. So I would try to concentrate on anything from the back all the way down the leg. And then uh, is there any kind of associated symptoms with that? In other words, or do you have, you know, what's the timing of that? What's the other symptoms that have happened? Uh, is there uh, something that you do every time? When did you first uh, experience that? Those are all things to try to localize that. Now, at 50, if you're just having a uh, what we call would call a, a mononeuropathy or, or it only affects one or a limited amount of nerves in your foot, uh, there are things that possibly could be pressing on the nerve either, again, from the back all the way down to the foot. And usually that's the, the most common thing that can happen. Some of the more systemic things that usually uh, present as, as more than one area of having numbness. For instance, if you have both your feet are numb, if you had some other type of chronic disease like uh, type 2 diabetes, if you maybe had a vitamin deficiency like B12 uh, deficiency, some, sometimes those kinds of things can present that way. But uh, it really sort of depends on how it began and uh, where you go from there. The other question is, well, who do I need to see? Do I need to jump in to see a neurologist? You could. Um, We don't have a whole lot of neurologists in the state of Mississippi, though. So I would say start with your general practitioner first. And again, hopefully they will ask you some of these detailed questions like, tell me when it started. What makes it worse? What makes it better? Um, how long does it last? Have you noticed any kind of activities that have sort of brought it on? Uh, is it intermittent in nature? Does it sort of come and go? Um, have you taken anything for it? Did it help? 
And then from there, they can decide what further tests to do. An exam is always a really good thing to do because that's going to refocus that history that you had um, that you gave on sort of what is going on with it. And then also a um, test, you know, people are like, well, don't I just need, can I just get like an MRI of my back or my leg? Well, without having that really good history and physical exam, that's really going to focus which test you get. They may order some labs based on that, again, to look maybe for vitamin deficiencies. I don't think if it's just the left foot, that's probably unlikely. It's more likely that something is affecting the nerve that is uh, responsible for sensation of that uh, of that foot itself. So that's where I would go with that. You know, a lot of people will take all kinds of different things to try to prevent it. Uh, you know, Tylenol or Motrin, if it's pain, is good. Numbness, not so much. If they do find that this is a compression of a nerve, either in your back or maybe it's your sciatic not- notch, which is on the back side of your bottom, uh, that uh, the biggest nerve, the sciatic nerve, sort of goes through there to your leg. And then, um, you know, then they can do some more uh, limited interventions of that. There are some other techniques, depending on where it is, and sometimes they'll find that on exam, too. But uh, without having a whole lot more to go on with the numbness, that's where I would start with that. But probably needs to be seen, particularly if it's been going on for a good while. Like if it's been going on for a couple of weeks to a month, that probably needs to be looked at, if for nothing else, just to see if they can improve that. Certainly foot numbness can cause a lot of problems. Um, you know, and as you get older, that can be a big instigator for a trip and a fall, which can certainly do a lot of damage like a broken hip or maybe having a head trauma with that. So you definitely don't want to sort of blow those things off. Um, and uh, the other thing is as trauma in the past, if you've had trauma to your lower leg, sometimes that can affect uh, the nerves that are going to the feet and you can get some sclerosis of the bone, again, pushing on that nerve or even gross on the nerve itself like neuromas uh, that can affect the, the that can produce that numbness in that extremity. So those are some things to, to think about. If Even if you hadn't seen anybody, you might want to write that down. Just write it down like you're telling a story. That's really what, you know, as a physician that you want to hear is tell me the story of what happened. And then they can ask you some questions to sort of hone in on those elements that could narrow that list down. Because really, if you come into the office and tell me I've got left foot numbness, immediately my, my brain is going to about 20 different things that that could be. Uh, and then I'm going to ask questions to try to narrow it down. So uh, don't try to go to the Internet and diagnose yourself with that first. You know, with something like this, probably it's best to have somebody who's trained in that area to do it. So hopefully that helps uh, to, to narrow that down and point you in the right direction. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Southern Remedy is a a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Abram Nanny. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone.